All right. Today we step into the primary content of our spiritual warfare series. For the last uh, couple of weeks uh, prior to this, we were focusing in on the bigger picture, right? As a matter of fact, the last message I preached was called The Bigger Picture. But we were talking about the reality of spiritual warfare. And then last time we were together, uh, we were talking through the bigger picture, the, the nature of uh, the kingdom conflict between Satan's kingdom and God's kingdom and the part that we play in that kingdom. One of the important things about any warfare engagement is not just understanding yourself, but understanding your enemy. If you do not know your enemy, if you do not understand your enemy, you will be fundamentally disadvantaged in your defense against him. If you have the uh, capacity to understand his tactics, to understand the ways in which he fights, how he works, the ways he subverts, then you have a better chance of identifying and thus uh, uh, resisting those temptations and trials when they come. Now, characteristically in Christianity, we have broken the enemy of God's people as it relates to his spiritual enemy into three primary categories. These are not directly listed in the Bible as such. We do see them together. I'll show you that in a few moments. Uh, they, they are not directly listed as the great three enemies of the Christian walk or of the Christian life or of the church of God, uh, but they do form a general foundation for us to understand the nature of the battle we fight and the various ways in which this battle or the enemy manifests itself. These three primary categories that we talk about are the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world the flesh, and the devil. And we can draw these categories from a number of biblical places, but it is perhaps most clear in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians is perhaps the, 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 the best book we have as far as spiritual insight into the spiritual battle. And in Ephesians, there is a great deal of, of talking about the various elements of spiritual warfare. Of course, we have the armor of God in Ephesians 6, which we will spend plenty of time in uh, within this series. But earlier on in the book of Ephesians, we see glimmers of this idea as well. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, Paul writes this to the church there at Ephesus. And you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we, we all had our conversation in times past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath even as others. So in these verses, we witness Paul describe unbelievers walking in the three ways that I have just described unto you. First, according to the course of this world. The course of this world, that would be the spirit of this age as we would know it then according to the prince of the power of the air. Of course, that would be the devil. And then finally, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. That would naturally be the impulses of our sin nature or our flesh. And this division helps us gain a measure of insight into the nature of the battle and the ways in which we are called to fight it. But of course, though we have these three distinct categories that we might lay out for ourselves, I think you'll find as we walk through them, and you probably know very well uh, by virtue of the battles that you've already faced in any number of, of years against these things, that these three enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil, are quite interconnected with one another, aren't they? 
we cannot simply say, oh, this is a temptation of the flesh, or oh, this is a temptation of the world, or of the devil, because the devil exploits our flesh. Uh, the devil inspires, or the world inspires our flesh. Uh, the devil invokes the world. As a matter of fact, the world is his system, right? And of course, the world guides us unto the devil. To this end, while over the course of the next several weeks I am breaking this teaching up by their general categories of the world, the flesh, and the devil for the sake of organization, for the sake of communication, for the sake of us understanding each of these enemies in their own way, please do not compartmentalize these things thinking that they operate exclusively. And with that being said, let's talk about the enemy in our spiritual battle that the Bible calls the world. Now, in the Greek New Testament, we find four different words that are used to describe the world. We find the Greek word gay used only one time in Revelation 13, and that is perhaps the one that's most rooted in the actual earth or the soil. We find the Greek word oikumene, meaning land or territory, found 14 times. Several months ago, we talked extensively about the word ion, which is a word which means age, found 37 times translated in our King James Bible world. And then finally, the word cosmos. 185 times this word is used in the, in the New Testament. And naturally, we see it's used far more than the others. And it's also the broadest. It's a very broad word speaking of any number of elements of creation, of creation's order, of creation's arrangement, of its inhabitants, of its direction, of its philosophy. All of these fall into the category of this word cosmos. Now to that end, as we consider this word world, and we consider the nature of the world as our spiritual enemy, we must do so carefully. And particularly, we must do so contextually if we're going to understand the intent of this message and the intent of the danger and the enemy of the world. And let me demonstrate as we dig into the teaching why it is that it's so important that we keep this teaching and this word world in its context. The primary passage which we're, we'll use, and it's the primary passage for today, so you can certainly turn there if you'd like to follow along. The primary passage that we use to define the nature of the world as our enemy is found in 1 John 2. And in 1 John 2, beginning in verse 15, John writes this, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. So here we see this call. Love not the world. And then a second call. Neither the things which are in the world. Don't love the world. Don't love the things that are in the world. And in each instance, uh, there are six instances of the word world in these three verses. All six of them are this word cosmos, okay? 185 times this word is used in the New Testament. We have six of them here in these three verses, the word cosmos, the arrangement, the order, the inhabitants, the direction, the philosophy of God's created order. So the command then, not to love the world, and we'll come back to this in just a moment. Now let me show you why context is so important 
to the Bible as a whole and to this study in particular. The book of 1 John was written by the evangelist John, the apostle John, not John the Baptist, right? And he wrote four of the books of the Bible, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and then the epistle of John. And here we have 1st John, John writing, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. But if I go back to his, his gospel, the gospel of John, and I go back to that very, very well-known verse, probably the most well-known verse in all of the Bible, John 3.16, the Bible says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Okay, so once again, we see two verses here, and we find three uses of the word world within these two verses. And all three are that same Greek word, cosmos. Now, remember, this is the same author. John the Apostle wrote John and 1 John. The same author commands us in 1 John not to love the world. But he tells us back in the Gospel of John that the very reason why God sent his only begotten son into the world to die on the cross is because God so loved the world. You see why context matters so much? God loved the inhabitants of the world so much that he sent his only begotten son to redeem them from the ensnarement of the direction and the philosophy of the world. And as those who have been redeemed from the direction and the philosophy of the world, we are called to reject a further affection and loyalty to the direction and the philosophy of the world. But this by no means implies under any circumstances that we are not to love as God loves the inhabitants of this world, which is what John 3.16 is talking about. Same word, very different context, very broad word, and we need to understand the broad nature of that word to allow it to remain in its context. And this is why, by the way, we always study the Bible in context. Why we always keep any teaching in context. Why we use Scripture to interpret Scripture. So then let's go back there to 1 John chapter 2, and we'll start working through this definition of the world, the philosophy and the direction of the world, the thing that we are supposed to not love as it relates to the world. Only this time I want to start back a little bit farther in the context. So in 1 John 2, beginning in verse 12, and then we'll read again through verse 17, the Bible says this, I write unto you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. I write unto you, fathers, because ye have known him that is from the beginning. I write unto you, young men, because ye have overcome the wicked one. I write unto you, little children, because ye have known the Father. I have written unto you, fathers, because ye have known him that is from the beginning. I have written unto you, young men, because ye are strong, and the word of God abideth in you, and ye have overcome the wicked one. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Now I took you back a little bit so that you can see the connection between John's joyful confidence in the believers unto which he was writing that they had overcome the wicked one 
and the subsequent commands regarding the nature of our relationship to the world. Within this context, we have the world, the flesh, and the devil right here again, don't we? We have the wicked one who has been overcome as they overcome the world, and we have a part of the definition of what the world is being the lust of the flesh. And so again, recognize the interconnected nature of these, but also recognize how each one individually has a part to play. The wicked one, that would be Satan, has been overcome by faith. And I mention this very specifically. Because as we step into these enemies, and over the next three weeks I'm going to be giving you the enemies, I'm not necessarily going to be giving you all the weapons of our warfare, that's coming later. So once again, the beginning of this series, I'm going to be leaving you perhaps a little bit bereft of solutions. But do take note that in Christ, we are overcomers. Overcoming the world, the flesh, and the devil is our birthright. The power has been given to us by God through His Spirit, which indwells us to overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil. So that as the scriptures tell us, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. To that end, as we study the enemy, these enemies, we do not do so hopelessly. We do so recognizing that these battles have been overcome by Christ. And thus we can overcome as well. So let's talk about the nature of the world. Love not the world, John says, neither the things that are in the world. So don't love the world. Don't love the things in the world. And in order for us to understand the magnitude of this warning, we then read, if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. We'll come back to that toward the end of our time together today and understand a little bit better what it means that if you love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. This is one of those important elements of 1 John. I've taught through 1 John on a Tuesday night. I've never preached through 1 John. I need to so that we can get it recorded. Uh, 1 John is a very important and unique book. 1 John is not a book about how to be saved or, or how not to be saved. 1 John is a book about how to live in fullness of joy. 1 John is a book about how to tap who is saved and what it means to be saved and how to live in fellowship with God. It's a book of fellowship. It's not a book of salvation. A lot of people get this wrong and they go to 1 John and they believe that you can lose your salvation because of what 1 John says. Things like this. Uh-oh, I've, I've given in to some measure of the world, therefore the love of God is not in me, therefore I'm not a believer. That's not what John is saying here. So we'll come back to that toward the end. But suffice it to say, every believer wants to love God and wants the love of the Father to be in him. So our, our, our ears should be perked at this point. If any man love uh, the world, the love of the Father is not in him, okay, then, then what is the world? If I'm not supposed to love the world, and if the, the love of the world it places me outside of the love of the Father, or, or, or outside of loving the Father, excuse me, then what is this world and how do I avoid it? And John then goes on to define the things that are in the world. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. We spoke of these in our first sermon in this series in relation to the description of Eve's temptation in the Garden of Eden. This was um, 
something that we walked through as a prototype for temptation. And Eve, we remember, looked upon the tree and she saw that it was good for food. That this world is driven by certain allurements to the material and the earthly and the temporal parts of a person. This would be the lust of the flesh, the satisfying of a human craving that is within us. None of these things, as far as these human cravings that are within us, are inherently in and of themselves bad. Humans get hungry. Humans get tired. Humans get bored. Humans get jealous. Humans get angry. These are the temporal parts of a person that connect us to the world that is around us. This is, these are elements of the human part of us, elements of the flesh and of the bones. God described his spirit in James 5 as being jealous over us. God describes himself various times in Scripture as being angry. When Jesus walked upon this earth in the flesh, he became weary, he became hungry. He was at times overcome with sorrow so much so that he wept. So these things, these elements of the flesh themselves, of flesh and bones, they are not inherently in themselves bad things, bad cravings. Human impulses, desires, and emotions are not inherently sinful. The problem is when humans submit themselves to these impulses, these desires, and these emotions to be fulfilled in a manner that is outside of God's design for their use. God designed us to be hungry. And he has hunger as a specific function of our bodies, meaning to remind us that our bodies need fuel to sustain themselves. God designed then the fulfillment of hunger to be pleasurable. First as a means perhaps by which for us to, <laughs> to eat so that we, we don't starve ourselves. But it's also a means of bringing about a pleasure and a consolation in life. Food is a, a consolation in this life. Fellowship around the table is a joyful thing, an enjoyable thing to break bread together, an enjoyable thing to satisfy our cravings, to meet our hunger, to have a longing and a fulfillment and to be able to fulfill that. And of course, it also is a means of connecting mankind to the nature of Jesus Christ as the fullest satisfaction of our lives as the living bread. So that when Jesus calls himself the living bread, we can connect to this idea that I'm hungry and I'm longing for something and there's an emptiness there and then it gets filled. Going all the way back to manna in the Exodus. But if I submit myself to this impulse, and allow it to control me and drive me beyond just the fulfilling of the need of the body and the natural consolation of that, I become intemperate, gluttonous. I damage my body through the very thing that God has designed to sustain my body. I go from encouraging health as God has designed food to, to, to do for me to actually damaging my health. And so I have yielded the virtue of a human impulse. And as I've yielded the virtue of that human impulse, it has been twisted and perverted by a lust that is within me to become a vice, the vice of overeating or the vice of eating the, those things that are damaging to me. And that becomes a lust of the flesh. 
my flesh and the natural impulses of my flesh have now taken me beyond God's design, beyond God's virtue, and has put me squarely in the area of, of sin, of intemperance, of gluttony, of that which is counter to God's character. Something that God designed is being used outside of his design, and thus it is, it, it is sin to me. The best, of course, example of this, the one that, that's easiest to see in society is human sexuality. That God has designed the human sexual desire and it is not in and of itself sinful. God has designed it and ordained it like all things. He's designed a context within which for mankind to fulfill this desire within the context of his will through marriage. One man and one woman. This is designed to fulfill that which is a natural and right impulse within man in a way that God has allowed it to be. Now, the direction and the philosophy of the world rejects God and his design. And so it perverts God's design in a number of ways, fulfilling these God-given impulses in any number of ways outside of his design for the human body, whether that be adultery, whether that be sodomy, whether that be pornography, any number of other ways that humans have concocted to satisfy this God-given impulse in a way that is outside of the God-given design. And note, anytime God has built into us an impulse, he has built in a natural means by which for it to be fulfilled righteously. But when the lust of my flesh takes over, it twists and it perverts that God-given impulse, that God-given desire, and the lust of the flesh is what we have. So we call these sexual perversions. And we don't call them sexual prefer perversions specifically because we don't like them or because we find them distasteful or gross or because we don't want people to be happy or any of these things. That is not why the church has labeled these things as sexual perversions. The church has labeled these things as sexual perversions because they are perverting sexuality. They are twisting or bending that which God has created unto a particular end and for, a part for particular reasons, and they are twisting it, perverting it, taking it outside of God's design. They're, they're sexual perversions specifically because they indulge those impulses that are uh, in, in a way that is outside of God's given manner. And for we who are in Christ, who know God and who love God, this is what we know. That there is no, as I mentioned, natural God-given impulse exercised in perversion outside of God's design that God has not provided for within his design. There is a way for these fulfillments, these desires to be fulfilled within God's design. And within God's design, not only is there fulfillment, but there are not negative consequences. Whereas when we pervert those desires, be that sexuality or be that food or be that any of these other things, anger, jealousy, whatever it might be, when we twist these, when we pervert them, when we allow, uh, when we step outside of God's design in order to indulge them, there are always consequences. Regardless of the, te uh, of the temporal pleasures or joys, there are always consequences. So we could go through, I've mentioned several, we could go through any number of lusts of the flesh, right? And we could talk about God's design for it, 
the way in which it can be rightly executed according to God's design and the ways in which our, our natural tendencies can, over, can pervert or overindulge upon them. But I'll instead leave it to the Holy Spirit of God to take this concept and apply it to your own humanity according to his good pleasure. What is it in your life? What are those elements of natural human design that God has given to us that, that would be tempted to be perverted, twisted, confused, uh, overindulged, whatever it might be, to, to, to be used outside of God's design? That's the lust of the flesh. And that is a part of the world. It is a part of the world system. The overindulgence or the perversion of God's design, the lust of the flesh exercise a natural God-given human impulse outside of God's intended design. And Christian, there is not a single human impulse which is better enjoyed or realized by indulging the lust of the flesh than it is by submitting to the design of God. If God designed the impulses, then the manner in which God designed those impulses to be worked out is, by, is, is without question the manner in which they are also most fulfilling. The lust of the flesh might afford more temporal, immediate indulgence, fleeting happiness, but it always comes at a cost, Christian. When I live within the boundaries of God's design, I reap the fullest benefits of God's design without any negative repercussions upon myself, upon others, upon body, or upon soul. So love not the world. This does not mean don't love people. This does mean do not indulge the lust of the flesh. Do not put your affection and your desire upon the lusts of the flesh. And this is not necessarily easy in a culture such as ours because our culture amplifies and glorifies the lusts of the flesh. They never show the consequences, right? You never see commercials that show the consequences of indulging the lust of the flesh. You only see the, the happiness of the lust of the flesh. All of the influencers on social media, they never show you behind the scenes. They don't show you all of the, the suffering and all of the sadness and all of the shame and all of the sorrow. They only show you the, the, the temporal indulgence and the joy of it, the, the, that immediate happiness, but not the long-term consequences. Don't love the direction, the philosophy of the material and the temporal of ex existence in which we live. Don't love the lust of the flesh. Don't love the perversions of God-given human impulses. The lust of the flesh. The second thing we see in the Garden of Eden was Eve looking upon the tree and seeing not only that it was good for food, that it could fulfill the lust of the flesh, that she was hungry and that it looked delicious. But second, the Bible says that Eve looked and that it was also pleasant to the eye. This is the lust of the eyes. This is the second element that is in the world. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes. The lust of the eyes, as we might understand it, is often the precursor to the lust of the flesh, where the natural human impulse for that which is appealing to the eye, uh, that which is comely, that which is beautiful, that which is alluring, can in fact then drive my human appetite. I've often spoken of what we call the paradoxes of Christianity. This concept might best be understood through one of those paradoxes of Christianity, the difference between the material world and how it is built 
and the spiritual world and how the spiritual world is built. In referencing these paradoxes of Christianity, for those of you that aren't as familiar with my teaching, it's the idea of the way we perceive the world and the way God has actually designed the world to work. So we have this concept in the Bible that the wisdom of God is foolishness to man, right? That the things that man regards to be clever and wise and, and, and intelligent are actually uh, things which are, are, are not the way God has designed the world to work and, and are, are, are foolishness to God. That in order to gain my life, I must first lose it. That's a paradox. That if I want to be exalted, what must I do? I must humble myself, right? That is a paradox. That I'm called not to look upon the things which are seen, but I'm called to look upon the things which are not seen. Not to value things for their earthly merit, but to value things for their spiritually merit. That I take on the mind of God, and as I take on the mind of God, all of a sudden, the way I view the world and the things in this world shift. Now, that final statement, the things which are seen, not uh, uh, looking upon the things which are not seen rather than the things which are seen, this may give you the greatest insight into this concept of the lust of the eyes. And I drew this statement from 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Let me give you a little bit more of that, that context. 2 Corinthians 4, verses one, uh, 15 through 18, the Bible says this, For all things are for your sakes, Paul writing to the church of Corinth, that the abundant grace might through the thanksgiving of many redound to the glory of God, for which cause we faint not. But though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal." We find here one of any number of passages which call us to a way of understanding the world, whereby we do not condition that understanding of, uh, of circumstances, of actions, of people, of things, upon what our senses are telling us directly, but rather upon what God has taught us directly. That we see this world through the lens of how God describes it, rather than how our senses understand it. And so Paul here says we endure affliction, knowing that those afflictions had purchased for them a good reward. So the Christians, when they walked away from persecution, the Bible says they rejoiced that they might have suffered for Christ's sake. Who does that? How is it possible that suffering or persecution can bring to your heart joy? Not that you enjoyed the suffering. We're not crazy. But if you have a certain perspective on life, what you recognize is that that suffering in the name of the Lord, according to his will, brought reward in heaven and brought you nearer to your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And in, in that suffering, thus, your heart is genuinely filled with joy. Not because the suffering was good, it wasn't but because it brought you closer to Christ. It will bring you reward in heaven, and that fills your heart with joy. That is the idea of looking at the things which are not seen rather than, than the things which are seen. And this, this is a whole fundamental perspective change on all of life, is it not? It stands in direct contrast to the lust of the eyes. 
whereby we are submitted not to our impulses, but to our senses. So the lust of the flesh, that's submitting ourselves to our impulses. The lust of the eyes is submitting ourselves to our senses or to our emotions. Now, the, the sense that we talk about with lust of the eyes is our vision, right? But it's not just vision. Feel, taste, and feel in our hearts. Emotion. How susceptible is the human condition to be driven by appearances, to be driven by externals, to be driven by feelings, to allow what we feel to override what we know? We've seen it much in this last year. Our society is not being driven by anything knowledge-based right now, is it? Our society is being driven by emotion, by narrative, by feelings. It's very easy to do. It's very easy to judge by appearances rather than by content, to see what's external rather than what is internal. And of course, we are all susceptible to this. When the great prophet Samuel went to anoint the next king of Israel, the son of Jesse, after Saul had been rejected, you know the story, right? The sons of Jeff Jesse are lined up and he sees the first man there, Eliab, a man of great strength, a man of great stature. And he said, surely the Lord's anointed is before me. To which God replied to Samuel in 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, Look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. This is what we're talking about. The lust of the eyes. Allowing ourselves to judge upon appearances rather than to judge according to God's word. The natural impulse of appearance and perception convinced Samuel that the biggest and the strongest must be the king. Indeed, this is what the people had asked for at the beginning, right? And God gave them exactly what they wanted, the man who stood head and shoulders above the rest, Saul. That did not work out very well for them, did it? Because God doesn't see the world the way we see the world. And the exhortation that we not love the lust of the eyes is an exhortation to see this world as God sees this world. And once again... We speak not of the natural God-given human impulses to admire strength, stature, or beauty in anything. It's okay to admire strength, stature, and beauty. God has given these to us. But only rather that we do not exercise these impulses of appearance outside of God's design and put them over God's wisdom so that I can see the beauty of a great man-made feat of engineering or of art or of some other excellence of mankind but if I devote my life to that beauty, either to gain it, to buy it, or to fashion it, so that the decisions of my life are driven and dictated by a quest for the things that satisfy externally, I have gone beyond God's design and submitted myself to a perversion of God's design which will leave me empty in the end. This is called idolatry. And as with the first lust, the lust of the flesh, so too with this lust, the lust for the eyes, at least for men, of which I'm one, it is perhaps best understood through, through the eyes or through the lens of sexual desire. Proverbs 31.30 tells us this. Favor is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman that feareth the Lord, she shall be praised. 
Beyond simple, the simple impulse of the flesh is also the fulfillment of natural standards of beauty, the impulse, the lust of the eyes. Now, I mentioned a moment ago this is perhaps going to relate to men better than women, although as the scripture and experience would dictate, uh, women have the same idea. It's just from the end of pleasing rather than being pleased the desire to be beautiful rather than the desire to seek out beauty. And the Bible says favor is deceitful and beauty is vain. Not that favor and, and beauty are bad, sinful, evil, wrong. It's not wrong to be beautiful. It's not sinful to be beautiful. It's not wrong or sinful to be a, 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 a tall man or a strong man or a, a capable man or a, a, a beautiful woman or a capable woman. These are not wrong things. These are not sinful things. These are right things. These are good things in their place. They are not wrong, but they are a bad standard by which to value, to judge value and attraction, Right? So these things, these externalities, these are not sinful things, they are not wrong things, but they are a bad standard by which to judge value and attraction. So that while God has made men to appreciate feminine beauty and women to desire to be beautiful, and these are not bad things, where the direction and the philosophy of the world would seek to define women by their beauty define their worth or their value or their attraction by their physical beauty. The direction and the philosophy of the creator God is able to appreciate that beauty while placing worth, value, and attraction upon the hidden man of the heart, not on the temporal and material appearances. So that to judge by appearances in any context is to elevate the material above the spiritual. And here's the problem, as Proverbs 31 tells us. The material can be very easily manipulated. Whether that be by the beauty standards of the world, right? So the fashion industry and how they're constantly pushing something new. Why? Because they want to keep making money. So they have to have a revolving door of styles and a revolving door of, of, of beauty standards and such whether it be the revolving door of beauty standards or the simple fact that you can't stay beautiful forever. If your worth and your value is defined by externalities, even in things such as buildings, buildings can be beautiful, but they're not going to stay that way forever. Nothing material lasts. But the things which make for spiritual virtue these things remain. And so the lust of the eyes is when I take my natural appreciation for beauty or for splendor, be it buildings or people or whatever it might be, and I elevate it above, I place value, worth, or merit on things based upon those fleeting material conceptions rather than upon spiritual worth, which is where God places his standard for value. So our Lord exhorted in John 7, verse 24, judge not according to the appearance, but judge righteous judgment. And this idea is so very outside that which is natural to man, isn't it? I've had to fight with this with my children any number of times. 
my daughters appreciate beauty. And they might reject something. And I'll say, why did you reject it? Because it's not beautiful. Oh, okay. Their standard of beauty is gauging their emotional state. Some standard of beauty. But the essence of spiritual discernment is to understand what matters to God. It may be worth noting as well before moving on that Jesus embodied the character of this according to God. Isaiah 53 tells us that Messiah was not a man whom men desired to look upon. He did not come with natural beauty, strength, and honor as many great men have. He spoke, however, though he was not a man of natural dignity in those senses, when he spoke, the Bible says he spoke not as the scribes and Pharisees, for when he spoke, he spoke as one having authority. He had worth in the things that mattered most. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, lust of the flesh, the natural impulses of the human body, of, of humanity being perverted, the lust of the eyes, the natural impulses of uh, emotion and sensibility being perverted, the third and final element of the world, the pride of life. This is perhaps the easiest of the three elements which are in the world for us to grasp practically. In the Garden of Eden and the deception that was imposed upon Eve, this would be when she saw the tree and she saw that it was good for food to fulfill the lust of the flesh, that it was pleasant to the eye, that it fulfilled the lust of the eyes, and then finally, it was a tree to make one wise. That's the pride of life. As with the first two attributes, so too with this one. God has made humanity to be like himself. And so mankind is creative. Mankind is inquisitive. Mankind seeks unto and loves excellence. There's nobody who doesn't appreciate excellence. They may have a different idea of excellence as it relates to, you know, okay, so you don't care about that in, 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 in this realm of life. Um, so nobody, you know, that, that's a realm of life I don't care about, so I don't really care about excellence there, where someone else would look and say, can't you see how good that is? Can't you see? Well, no, I can't. You know, artists here. I, I don't have an artist's eye. I can't necessarily appreciate the ins and outs of art. I might look at something and say, hmm, that's okay. Or yeah, that looks pretty good. And someone else would say, but look how well they did that. Look at this part. Look at that part. I don't, I don't know. Uh, oh, great. I'm glad you appreciate it. But we all appreciate excellence. Excellence is not a bad thing. Striving for excellence is not a bad thing. And yet, as with the other two, so too with this characteristic, God has created boundaries within which these attributes are designed to work out in complete alignment with himself. Pursue excellence in alignment with God and his character. But this design can be perverted, twisted through a desire within me to exalt myself at the expense of others or to exalt myself at the expense of God. And this is pride. To seek praise and recognition for myself rather than to direct it unto the God that created me, enables me, and sustains me. And this is pride. And of course, once again, the whole of Scripture is filled with this concept epitomized in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And when at once I begin to operate in a manner that seeks unto self, self-recognition, self-fulfillment, self-aggrandizement, or even beyond the self, 
the exaltation of, say, humanity, the temporal or the material above the spiritual and divine. So maybe I'm not in being proud intrinsically in myself, but I am being proud in humanity, like at the Tower of Babel, where they may have had a measure of pride in each of their own accomplishments, but what they were really seeking to do is elevate themselves as a race, humanity, above God, right? Let us make a name for ourselves. And so there was a collective element of pride there, whereby the collective capacity for excellence was twisted and perverted unto a collective pride and exaltation above the name of God. When we do this, we go outside of the God-designed drive for excellence and success, which is meant to direct us unto God's glory as the creator and enter into the context of pride, seeking glory for myself, a glory that rightly belongs to God. 1 Corinthians 10.31 tells us, whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of me? No. Humanity? No. Society? No. God. This is what I am designed to do. To do all to the glory of God. And when at once my desire for excellence ceases to become a desire to glorify God, and becomes a desire to glorify myself or glorify something else intrinsically, I am now in a place of pride. The God-ordained operating procedure for this life, the context for life in which I am called to align, and by which, take note of this, by which I am able to experience the fullest fulfillment of human desire without any of the cost of rebellion or perversion, is to seek the heights of excellence that I may glorify God. Not only will this be the, the, the right thing to do, but it will be the most fulfilling thing to do. I don't believe it. How can it be that, that exalting God will be more fulfilling than exalting me? That doesn't make sense. Pastor, that's a paradox. Yes, it is. Because the wisdom of God is foolishness to man, and the foolishness of God, I mean, the foolishness of man, it, uh, yeah, and the, the wisdom of Man, it's foolishness to God. That's what I was going for, right? It doesn't make sense to us because we live in these earthly bodies. But for those of you who have lived it, you know it to be true. You know the fulfillment of doing things unto the glory of God. And what a wonderful freedom it is. When I can do something with excellence... And when it's done, I don't need man's validation in order to feel good about it. I don't need a bunch of money coming in to feel good about it. When at once I have done what I have done for the glory of God, then if God was glorified in it, I have maximum fulfillment. And anything else that might come of it is just the, the cherry on top. But I've already, I am already whole, wholly fulfilled in that I did it to the glory of God. And then I don't walk away feeling that kind of the, 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 the drain after the effort or 
um, the, the depression afterwards of my, my work wasn't appreciated. Uh, I, didn't, uh, I didn't gain what I expected from it. Uh, I wasn't recognized for my work in, in, in the way that I was expecting. Uh, and, and you don't have any of that because none of that is, is, is the perspective that matters to you. That in the church, maybe you're one that has worked behind the scenes. Like Holly, who comes and cleans every, every Tuesday, every other Tuesday. Or like our pianists, who from time, I, I try to remember to thank, but our pianists who, who, who play, and, and you don't really see them back there. I don't know how many people stare at the pianists while they're playing, but they, you, you have any idea how much that facilitates worship? <laughs> if, you, if you've been to churches that sing everything a cappella, you know how nice it is to have a pianist. All of these people that work behind the scenes, doing things, little things here and there, and if they do it to be recognized, well then, in an environment such as this, they, they may not be particularly fulfilled. And I mean, we all need recognition. We're not even saying recognition is wrong. But if they do it for that reason, if they seek unto it, there will be a measure of fulfillment, but that measure of fulfillment will be entirely contingent upon how much I'm thinking of them or you're thinking of them. But if they did it to the glory of God, then when things are done excellently, they look at that and they say, God is pleased and they are fulfilled. And then the other recognition comes and they are blessed. And that's God's design. That my every waking moment, every ambition, every success serves to magnify my Savior who gave to me his life and who gave me life and breath. He endowed me with talent. He gave me capacities. I've been faithful with them. Through them, I have accomplished tasks in excellence. And by doing that task with excellence, God is pleased. And that's enough. Paul said it this way a few chapters after 1 Corinthians 10 and 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. This is the God-ordained mindset. This is the God-designed mindset that we each strive for excellence out of the depths of our desire to maximize the gifts and the blessing that God has given to us that God may in all things be maximally glorified through me. Always recognizing that I can't even make those striving efforts without the grace of God upon me. And when it once this gets twisted, when it once this gets confused, and I start to seek for my own recognition, and I start to seek for my own ambitions, and I start to seek for my own benefits, I am now pursuing a measure of the pride of life. And it might be small and, and, and fairly inconsequential, or it might become very large and very consequential, but it is all a part of that pride of life. And Christian, when we talk about this world, as our enemy, this is what we're talking about. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Not the people of this world. They are your mission field. If you refuse to love them, you are refusing the very essence of why God has left you here. Not even actually the material possessions of this world. 
these inanimate objects, most of which in themselves have no intrinsic morality. God has given us minds. With minds, humanity has made great things. With those great things, we are able to use them. We are able to use them for purposes. How we use them has a moral flavor to it, but the things themselves, by and large, do not. Articles of clothing do not have intrinsic morality. They are fabric. Houses do not have intrinsic morality. They are wood and nails. Cars do not have intrinsic morality. Metal, plastic. TVs don't have intrinsic morality. Pixels and lights. Video game consoles, computers do not have intrinsic morality. They are silicon and wires. But the direction and the philosophy, the, 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 the ideology that the world uses these things to pursue, to appeal to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, those directions and those philosophies are the enemy of God's people, not the things themselves, not the people themselves, but the direction and the ideology and the philosophies that take these material things that are used by people to pervert God's design. That perversion is the enemy. By these inanimate objects and, in, uh, and influence of people and institutions, many Christians are made shipwreck. And this is the warning. Love not the world, Christian. Because when at once you begin to pursue not the, the, not the inanimate objects of this world, but you pursue those inanimate objects or those essence of, of emotion or of accomplishment through the philosophy of this world unto pride, unto overindulgence of the flesh, unto overindulgence of the appetites, unto overindulgence of the emotional stimulations, unto overindulgence of appearance. When at once you pursue them to that end, they have ceased from being something that, that, that is being used to the glory of God and they have, and are instead being used to pursue man, the, the, the philosophy of the world, the direction of the world. At that point, you are loving the world. And so we're called to love not the world, to place our affection, our perspective into the spiritual rather than to the material and the temporal. Use the material, use the temporal. Understand your emotions, understand the, their God-given place. Understand your impulses, understand their God-given place. Enjoy them for what they are. Uh, uh, use them within the scope of God's design. Enjoy the fulfillment that God has given you in them. All of that is wonderful. But when at once you begin to indulge those impulses, those desires, that pride, you have stepped outside of God's design and into the world. This is the danger. So our Lord would say this on the, in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 6, beginning in verse 19. Lay not up for yourself treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Verse 24. No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Jesus did not say don't have anything. He said don't treasure anything. There's a difference. If all of your treasure 
is in this, the things of this earth. Those things can be taken away from you. Not even just the material things. If all of your treasure is in the liberty that you enjoy in this country, that can be taken away from you. Can't it? If that is where your treasure is, then you have laid up on this earth treasures. You have placed your love and your loyalty and your fealty to things which are temporal and earthly in fashion. But if you lay up treasure in heaven, it cannot moth, it cannot corrupt, and it cannot be taken from you. How do I know where my treasure is? Where's your heart? How do I know where my heart is? Where's your treasure? Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. First John said, if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. When John said that, if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him, that is the same concept that Jesus is saying here, you cannot serve God and mammon. You cannot both put your affection upon the direction and the philosophy of this world and have your affection upon the direction and the philosophy of God. You can put your affection on the direction and philosophy of this God and still own stuff. But if that stuff becomes your affection, if that stuff becomes your treasure, you have ceased to be able to put your affection in on the, the direction of this world and you have trans, or, of God and you have transitioned it to the direction and philosophy of this world. See, the world and God, their, their direction, their philosophy, their ideologies are always walking in, two, in opposite directions. Always. And as I said a couple of Tuesdays ago, for those of you that were here on Tuesday night, when you see the world and the church walking in the same direction, this you can know. It's not because the world is walking with the church. The Bible leaves no scenario for the world to do anything but rebel and eventually burn in judgment. When you see the church and the world walking in the same direction, the reason is because the church is walking with the world. The world is not walking with the church. And when the church walks with the world, loves the world in this manner, the love of the Father is not in the church. The church is not loving the Father. Now, this is a degreed thing. It doesn't mean that you're not a Christian. It doesn't mean you haven't accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. It doesn't mean you don't want to, 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 to love the world. It means that you are not actively manifesting a love for the Father if you are uh, to the degree that you are actively manifesting a love for the world. You can't do both. You can't serve God and mammon. You can't have it both ways, Christian. You can own stuff and love the Father, but in order to love that stuff, you have to... You have to transition your love from the Father to do it. So one pastor I know said it this way, it's okay to have stuff, it's not okay for stuff to have you, right? It's okay to have things as long as your treasure is in that which is heavenly. But you can't have your treasure in heaven and on earth simultaneously. To whatever degree your treasure is on this earth, to that degree, you have transitioned your, your heart's loyalty from heaven to earth. Now, we could go from passage to passage for the next hour and talk through these things, but we won't. If you would like to study this further, Colossians 3, Ephesians 4, Ecclesiastes. You can listen to my series on Ecclesiastes. That would help you through this. And Proverbs. We'll talk more about it in the weeks to come as it relates to the weapons of our warfare. 
But for today, we close with this thought. Every week you're gonna hear me restate my struggle because I'm kind of an application sort of a guy. I don't like to leave you without any, and, and, and there has been application smattered through today. Um, but I am kind of presenting against my nature by telling you all of the, the dangers of the, of the enemy without telling you how to defeat them, but that's coming. There's a method to this madness. For this week, there's one charge upon us regarding the information that we have heard. Without our mind being cluttered by various other elements of the battle, the call is that we look upon the nature of the enemy himself. Where has the world found its way into our lives? Not that we own stuff or not that we love the people of the world. That's not what we're talking about. Where has a love for the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, where has that found its way into our lives, our families, our church? Where does the philosophy of this world that centralizes its power on this earth, where has it encroached into our lives? How are we called to be different? What does that difference look like? Favor is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman that feareth the Lord, she shall be praised. What should that mean about the nature of what attraction means to us, of what beauty means to us? While we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. What should that mean for the peace in our hearts? Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. What does that mean about how I work during the week? About how I do the chores my parents have asked me to do? About what doing homework looks like? About what singing in church looks like? about what my life looks like. What are the tactics of the enemy? How does the enemy sneak lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life into life, into me, into my family? Where is it coming from? How is it getting there? And this is the goal. Not this week to know how to fight the enemy per se, but to see the enemy. Do you see him? Do you see the world? Do you see where it is in your life, in your family? Do you see how it got there? To know what the enemy is doing. Because it'll do very little good for us to understand how to fight the enemy if we've got massive holes in our lines letting him through. So let's make sure we know the enemy. We know his tactics. We know what he looks like. And we know where to find him. And then in the weeks to come, we can worry about fighting, fighting him back. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.